So thank you, Pastor Matt, for those words of welcome, and uh, thank you for coming tonight. I know that there are almost certainly more exciting things to do on a Saturday evening than come to church and have this kind of discussion, and so I'm thankful that uh, you're concerned enough about this serious issue to uh, come together and to uh, reflect together about how we as Christians can properly uh, respond. So you already have heard my name, Jeffrey Wyma, like why ma do I have to do this and why ma do I have to do that? And you can see my middle initials over here, right? A.D., I was predestined to be a New Testament professor. So uh, I've been teaching New Testament for a long time now, actually, for 28 years, so long that I had not only Pastor Matt as a student, but also Pastor Greg and his wife, Sarah, and, um, and, and uh, maybe others, too. So I've been very thankful that uh, God has kind of opened that door for teaching, but I do a bunch of other things besides teaching, preaching tomorrow, speaking, leading tours, and uh, it is indeed a full and rewarding life. I'm happy that my better half is here, and so I... I want you to know that she's keeping an eye on me. You know, I, I'm one of these egghead professors that do foolish things, you know, and it's socially awkward, and you really need someone like that, you know, to make sure you don't mess up too big. And so I'm glad that uh, she could join me for our time together this weekend. Well, so uh, we have a somewhat significant subject to talk about tonight. I, I'm not always excited to talk about it in the sanctuary. Uh, not, not that I don't think this is a fitting place, but... People are conditioned to act and react in a certain way. Every Sunday, some of us come to a place like that, and, and maybe it makes it a little harder. It's a little more intimidating to respond in a natural way or maybe to ask a question. So I hope that you'll overcome that, that burden, and I do hope that the PowerPoint notes, so you don't have to worry about getting everything down, right? It's all there, the raw data. You can just listen and, and focus on what we're discussing, and uh, I don't like people who present and then say, oh, we're out of time, too bad, we can't ask any questions, see you. Uh, sometimes I have a sneaky suspicion it's like a, a little bit of a cop-out, you know, to avoid hard questions and they, you know, anyway, we're not doing that, um, so we will have time this evening because I would like to hear the kind of things you're asking about and you're concerned about, whether they're challenging some of the things that I'm presenting or maybe you just have questions about about this subject from elsewhere. And so, so hopefully all this will come together in a positive way. So the title, Same Sex Sex, What Does the New Testament Say? So right away I recognize that there are other sources of information that we ought to at least think about when answering this question. In other words, um, the social scientists, scientists, right? You know, what do they tell us? Uh, uh, biology, you know, what do they teach us? What do we learn about? from those communities, but as Christians, as Jesus followers, right, we do believe that there is a priority to the word. And so it's good that we begin as kind of a foundation uh, for our reflection on what does the Bible say. And so I'm well aware about those other discussions, and maybe you want to ask me about them, but tonight, in a sense, I'm narrowly focusing on, and not even just what the whole Bible says, but what the New Testament says in this particular this particular matter. So I've got some preliminary comments before we dive in. First of all, some introductions. I think it's important for you to know that I have been in first-hand conversation at some length with people who are same-sex attracted. Right? I just stress that because I do speak once in a while, not a lot, but once in a while on this subject, and even people who never hear me 
and, and don't like what I say, they, their first thing is, you shouldn't study anymore. You should just spend time with same-sex attracted people, right? You should just listen to LGBTQ people and so forth, right? And I guess I want you to hear that I do spend time with those people, right? And I have had conversations with those folks. And, and maybe tomorrow, if you're in this church, you'll, you'll have a chance to hear more. But our Christian Reformed denomination has a study committee very broadly on human sexuality. And one of the members on that committee is Reverend Mary Lee Bauma. She's a Christian Reformed pastor. She's same-sex attracted. Lived out that lifestyle earlier in her life, but came to realize that the scriptures did not permit such conduct. And she now is on our committee. And so that's a pretty active voice whom I'm dialoguing with three times when we get together three times a year for the last four years, and we're almost thankfully done. Uh, another voice, this is from the West Michigan area, this is Laura Krieg, another person who is same-sex attracted, but also believes that the scriptures do not allow people to live out that orientation, and she has a particular ministry, it's called Hole in My Heart Ministries, and she's another voice uh, from the same-sex uh, or LGBT community that uh, I've been in conversation with. And then another person who's not so close, but in terms of my personal familiarity, but he's similar in the sense that he's an egghead New Testament professor like me. Um, uh, Wesley Hill had a book a few years ago. He's had other books too, but this book, Washed and Waiting, has been kind of well-read. You know, it's worth your listening to. And he's a person who grew up in a very strongly conservative evangelical background and felt an attraction to the same sex and struggled with that. And this book kind of discusses how that journey went for him. And, and there are more voices that I've listened to, but it's really important for you to know because we live in a culture and age where there are lots of same-sex attracted people who do not live according to the biblical mandate with regard to same-sex activity, all right? In other words, there are lots of same-sex attracted people, some in culture at large. You know, our current society is very good at highlighting those voices, but even in the church, increasingly so, there are same-sex attracted people who do not believe that the Bible prohibits same-sex activity. And so it's important for you to have those voices, which I'm assuming you have some exposure to. You certainly do in the public culture, and maybe you do in your personal life. You know, many people here tonight might have a family member or a friend or someone. So it's important for those voices to be balanced, right? Yes, it's important to listen to firsthand stories of people who struggle with same-sex attraction. I want you to know that for all those who struggle and feel like they, they either can't or they don't have to live a celibate life in terms of their orientation, there are also voices who speak differently. So those models often don't get a lot of press or attention. I just uh, gave a bit of attention to those three voices when they've been part of my dialogue partners. Now, for preliminary observations, before we get to the text, I want to make some preliminary comments. The first one is very, very important, and that is, uh, bluntly speaking, the church and the Christian Reformed Church right, has a very bad track record in ministering appropriately to same-sex attracted people. And uh, there's just no way to get around it, and so we should just acknowledge this fact because um, a lot of hurt has been done to those in those communities. And you know, God has created us with a desire for fellowship. And when such people can't find fellowship within the body of Christ, within their own church family, 
we shouldn't be surprised if they go to another community where they do find it, and often those communities where they do find it tend to be communities that aren't concerned about what the scriptures say on this, right? So the church has had a bad track record on this. Um, there's a quote here from the 1973, this is 50 years ago. So we said something back then in that report, but look at what it said. It said it's one of the great failings of the church and Christians generally that they have been lacking in sympathy and concern for the plight of the homosexuals among them. So that was said already 50 years ago, and, and, and we really haven't made a lot of progress since then. And I think it's just very, very important for us to be honest and to, to recognize that fact. And that's why the Synodical Committee, of which I am a part, five-year mandate, that's another unusual thing, we gave an interim report that Synod took up this past year. And in the interim report, if you took time to read it in the preamble, in the, in the prologue to that document, there's some important statements about how the church has failed in this area, and there's actually a call to uh, repentance. So make sure you heard me say that. Second preliminary comment, and that is our denomination has made an important distinction. The truth is the Bible only talks about same-sex acts, not same-sex orientation or just the attraction itself. So it's important to distinguish between conduct, what people do, and maybe how people are wired, how they think, and so forth. And the scriptures are clear on same-sex conduct, and that's what I'm going to be talking about with you uh, tonight, but it's important to keep this distinction in mind. It's a distinction that goes quite a bit back to already this synodical report of almost 50 years ago. Now, of course, heterosexuals' orientation is also negatively impacted by the fall, just like same-sex attracted people are, but both of us in our fallen condition, same-sex attracted heterosexuals, are called upon to live a life of holiness, something that I hope to be able to share with you from Scripture uh, tomorrow in the worship service here. The third preliminary comment is we have to be careful not to, uh, maybe not to uh, highlight too much sexual sins. Uh, we tend to do that. Maybe in our own defense it's because we live in a highly sexual culture, you know, and and so no wonder in an age and society where everyone's kind of preoccupied with sex, you know, who's sleeping with so-and-so, I'm talking about the media, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Maybe it's no wonder we tend to maybe elevate sexual activity and sexual sins above others. But it's important, nevertheless, to recognize that the scriptures put them all on the same plane. There, there's a, there's a, a, a vice list we'll come back to later because there's, a, there's two words in here that are really important. But, but I want you to see for now, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And here comes the list. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, or adulterers, or men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, in that whole list, and there's a special, there are two words in there that have to do with same-sex activity, which is why we'll have to look at it uh, in greater detail. But this is supposed to work. But let's see, where's that? Oh, wait a minute. I know what I'm doing. I'm... Sorry here, I'm, I'm getting used to this thing over here. Uh, there it is, and I hit this button, and aha, does that work? You see that? You see it down. Anyway, over here, there's, <laughs> I can hardly see myself. There it is, uh, there's a reference to the greedy. You see that right there, the greedy. Now, I, I'm quite sure that no one here tonight says it's okay to be greedy. But the truth is, you know, 
if we have people in our family, maybe even ourselves, who are just maybe too preoccupied with money and are all, always obsessed with financial matters and, you know, what's the stock market doing in my 401k? And even though they have more than enough to ride out retirement and the left of their life, they're still selfishly hanging on. I mean, we, no one thinks that's good. But for some reason, we don't put it on par with men who have sex with men and people who will not inherit the kingdom of God, you know, right? And so I guess I'm just warning us to be equal sin opportunists, you know what I mean? Let's not uh, just cherry pick, you know, some sins are worse than others. And so in this discussion, uh, we really do have to be careful. Actually, I haven't said this yet, too. I'm a little bit actually hesitant about speaking about this subject in the sense that it could be judged a bit unfair. Our synodical report, which I've referred to a couple times already, will have a long section on pornography. And I simply tell you that the, there, are, there are way more people in the church today who are impacted by the topic of pornography than there are people in the church who are impacted by same sex. I mean, just percentage-wise, right? So it's, it's a bit unfair that we're, you know, I don't want to look like we're picking on one particular group of people or one particular sin. Although the flip side is, of course, um, we live in a culture and age where there's some question about same-sex attraction and what should the biblical position be, right? So I am going to talk about it because it needs to be talked about, but I, I hope you hear all of these preliminary comments. I'm not trying to pad my time. I've got more than enough to say. It's just I want you to to put my words that I'm about to say, when we turn to the scriptures, you put it in a proper context, right? That's so often in life, it's not just what you say, but how you say it, right? And how you hear it, right? And so, again, whether you like what I say or don't like what I say tonight, and, and that could well be the case, I know from experience how this works, uh, uh, you know, I'm trying to stress again those preliminary people I've had conversation with, so I have been listening and continue to listen to those first-hand voices, and also these, these preliminary comments are all really important, things like recognizing our failures, um, distinguishing between orientation and practice, and also not unduly elevating sexual sins, including same-sex sin beyond that, of other things that Christians, that Jesus followers should be concerned about. Okay, well that takes care of the preliminary observations, and so now we, we start turning to the evidence. And I don't like this division of evidence, but yet it is commonly made. And so I say, okay, if that's where the argument goes, then I'll follow that. What am I talking about? It's very common for people who talk about this, especially, I'm afraid, those who I'm more progressive on the issue, to somehow try to drive a wedge between, we'll call it the testimony of Jesus and the testimony of the rest of the Bible, which usually means Paul. In other words, people who talk about this often say, well, what does Jesus say and what does Paul say? And I'm going to follow that same pattern, even though I don't like it, and it's inappropriate for some reasons that will become clear hopefully soon, all right? We don't pit what Jesus says over against Paul and we don't have the phrases a canon within the canon as if certain parts of the Bible are more important or more authoritative than others, right? There are all kinds of problems with this way of thinking. But hey, this is often the way the argument is given. And so you whom I'm anticipating are going to hear these kind of arguments, right? I'm trying to present it in as fair a way as possible. I'm saying someone may well come to you and, 
and just first of all talk about what Jesus says on this subject. And so if they do, how should you respond? What should be the evaluation, all right? So the common argument goes like this. If same-sex sex is so bad, how come Jesus didn't say anything about it? Right? There's a saying I find, I didn't type, the, type this out, it says, I follow Jesus, not the Bible. There's some problems with saying that, but in any case, uh, this is the argument that is made. Right? So, so how shall we respond? And I have response number one. I wouldn't have to tell you it's response number one if there were not. After that coming response number Okay, and if you're looking ahead, there's three, four, and five, okay? So, okay, you'll just, you know, there are a bunch of problems with this argument. We start off by saying this, right? What's really striking is the fact that, wait a minute, let me just, what nationality was Jesus? Just to make sure that we're all on the same page. He was a, okay, no one's going to, okay, good. So, so, so in other words, Jesus, who grew up within a Jewish community, and what did Jews typically say about same sex? And the answer is very, very clear. The answer is no. <laughs> Which is actually kind of striking because if you know anything about Jews, especially Jews in the first century, they love to argue. They love to debate. I mean, you find any subject and you can find a disagreement and they go at it, okay? They almost enjoy this kind of debate. And so it's actually even more striking that on the issue of same sex sex, the Jewish writings, you know, outside the Bible that we know, right? We know quite a bit about writings from outside the Bible during the time. Unanimous in condemning it. So our assumption should be, if Jesus is a Jew growing up in this kind of environment, Jesus also would condemn it. Now, of course, Jesus did disagree with the common attitudes of his day, so that's possible. But when he did disagree, then, of course, he would say so, Right? And people would usually freak out right in response. Jesus did say a lot of controversial things that people didn't like. So, so the first answer is, is that we should just assume that Jesus, as a Jew of his day, living in a culture where there was unanimous rejection of same-sex activity, that Jesus would share that position too, unless you had clear proof otherwise. Now, a second uh, answer is this. Despite the popularity of red-letter Bibles, I, I'm tempted to ask you, do you have a red-letter Bible? I don't want to ask you, because you say yes, I'm going to say, no, that's bad. <laughs> right? Actually, there's nothing really bad with a red-letter Bible, but, but really, you know, within Reformed theology, and I'm in a Christian Reformed church, you know, as part of a Reformed tradition, you know, we, we, we don't really separate the red letters from the black letters, right? We don't think that the red letters are somehow more important than the black letters. You know, there was a Christian song by Carmen a few years ago. I'm going to have a red letter day, right? I mean, I mean, that's a nice song. You know, you start off the day by opening your Bible and you listen to the red letters and then you go for it, right? And I'm not against that, but, but really well, thoughtful, mature Christians, right? Don't try to drive a wedge between what Jesus said or didn't say and what the rest of the biblical authors say, right? And in fact, Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, says something very striking. Paul says to the Thessalonians, he says, I give thanks to God that you accepted our words, I'm quoting directly here, not as the words of men, but as they truly are, the word of God. Kind of striking because Paul meant, that means that Paul himself had some sense, right, that the Holy Spirit, that God was working through him in what he was saying was not just the words of men, but God's word. So you can't, you, you shouldn't, you shouldn't, feel comfortable. You shouldn't accept someone who tries to contrast red letters, whatever Jesus said, 
with the black letters of Paul that we're going to get to later on. That's just really an inappropriate division. So that, that's another problem with this approach. A third approach is this violates the argument of silence. So here's a demonstrator, and, and can you see what he says here? As Jesus said about gay people, and then in, in what's between the two quotation marks? Nothing, you see? you see. So his point is, Jesus didn't say anything about this, right? Okay, you people are all worked up about it. I mean, you should realize that Jesus didn't say, and if Jesus didn't say anything about it, then obviously he must not have thought it was very important, right? And therefore, you shouldn't think it's very important. This is a common argument. Now, scholars call this an argument from silence. What does that mean? So you listen to somebody, and from what they don't say, you draw a conclusion, right? So, so someone is silent about something, and then you infer a conclusion about that, right? So um, let's imagine after an hour and a quarter, or maybe two hours with your Q&A, you know, I'm doing all this talking tonight, and on the way out, you say to someone, you know, Dr. Wyman never once tonight said that he loved his wife. And then you turn to, I wonder if he really loves his wife. Okay? That's an argument from... Silence, right? You're, you're taking something I didn't say, and then you're drawing out, you're inferring a conclusion. It's always a dangerous thing to do, not only with regard to my marriage, but even on something like this. I mean, the truth of the matter, the reason is that Jesus didn't say anything about it is because he didn't feel he had a need to say about it. I mean, he lived in a culture and age, I already told you, where what? What did Jews, did they disagree about this? The answer is no. I mean, I mean, it'd be like, no one's going to ask a teacher, a math teacher, teacher, what's the answer to 2 plus 2? Right? No teacher's going to say to the class, 2 plus 2 equals 4, especially at an older class, right? Because, duh, that's an accepted idea. And so the reason that, Paul, that Jesus doesn't say anything about it should be interpreted because, well, there was no need for him. There was no debate. There was no confusion about this matter, and so somewhat understandably. I could go a bit further. Did you know that Jesus doesn't say anything about um, prostitution? Did you know that? Are you going to tell me now that Jesus was okay with prostitution? Seriously? Jesus didn't say anything about bestiality, sex with animals. Are you going to tell me that Jesus would be okay with that? So I hope you realize that this argument from silence is really a very, very poor argument, and you shouldn't really give any weight to it at all, despite the nice, cool sign. Well, we still have more responses. So although Jesus didn't say anything explicitly about it, there are two places where he, I would say, implicitly said something about same-sex activity. One of these more implicit, indirect statements can be found here in Mark 7, because Jesus lists a bunch of sins by which a person defiles himself, and then in the original Greek, in some English translations, they don't do it that way, so it might be a bit misleading. But in the original Greek text, it has the word plural, sexual immoralities, plural. I'm stressing the plural. Why am I stressing the plural? Because Jesus obviously knew that there was more than one way to act inappropriately when it comes to sex, right? There's not just only one thing you can do wrong. It's not just sexual immorality, singular, sexual immoralities. There are a variety of things that one does with their sex life that are inappropriate. So then the question is, what's Jesus referring to? What's he alluding to with these plural sexualities? Well, maybe he's referring to something in the Old Testament. Would it be crazy to think that Jesus would be referring to something in the Old Testament? The answer is 
No, of course not, right? I mean, he knows the Old Testament. He's a good Jew, right? I mean, right? So anyway, that likely suggests that he knows texts like Leviticus 18 and 20, which, among other things, talks about same-sex activity, right? So this is not an explicit reference, but it's a pretty clear implicit or indirect uh, reference to same-sex activity. And then the next text is, uh, I think, even better. So Jesus was given a hard time by the... Pharisees about divorce, and then it's interesting that in answering them, he quotes not just from Genesis 2, but also from Genesis 1, because on the issue of divorce, he didn't need to include the quote from Genesis 1, he could have just done the quote from Genesis uh, 2. So if you follow, I, I can't quite see the text in the back, so I hope you don't mind, I'm not turning my back on you, but I guess I'm getting older and I can't, next time I come, you have a nice big screen monitor right up front for the speaker to read off, that's Good thing to do, okay? It's well worth the money. Anyway, here we go. Jesus says, haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the creator, quote, made them male and female. That's the first quote from Genesis 1. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. That first reference in red, you don't need to talk about it in divorce. You just need the second one. A man will leave his mother, right? Why does Jesus feel the need to add, he made them, quote, male and female? And the logical answer is because when Jesus thought about marriage, he thought about what? He didn't think about a male with a male. He thought about a male and female, right? So again, Jesus doesn't explicitly, directly address the topic of same sex because there was no need for him. But this text also is more than just an assumption that Jesus shared the Jewish attitude, but it's another kind of text from actual Jesus' words which supports that notion. So those are five different responses to a very weak claim that somehow the testimony of Jesus should be listened to rather than the testimony of Paul and that the testimony of Jesus would accept such behavior. And I have a quote here from a scholar and of course you can find scholars to support anything but but it's important for you to know that this guy over here, this Robert Gagnon, wrote a kind of definitive book. It's not a very user-friendly book. Okay? You, can, you can have it. It's not a bad book, but you know, don't expect it to keep you awake at night. Okay, right? Anyway, he's widely recognized as an expert writing on this subject, either by the conservatives or the not-so-conservatives. I mean, if they want to have a sample quote from a traditional view, they usually cite someone like Robert Gagnon. So I'm trying to say this isn't just anybody. It's a, it's a knowledgeable scholar on this particular subject, and what does he say? He says, quote, the portrayal of Jesus as a first century Palestinian Jew who was open to homosexual practice is simply ahistorical. All the evidence leads in the opposite direction. Ahistorical means it's unhistorical. It's not at all plausible given what we know about him and the history and culture of that day. So before I go on, I, I don't know, I, I, I want you to realize that these arguments are not far away from us. I mean, I was speaking, I won't tell where in our denomination, and I was a little bit disappointed that this pastor not only said it, but he seemingly said it without embarrassment. He said in front of all kinds of other ministers, he said something like, he said, he said I, I don't like to preach on Paul. He said, I like to preach on Jesus. Okay, because again, he's, in his mind, Paul is legalistic, harsh, you know, and so forth. Whereas Jesus is somehow kind, compassionate, loving, all right? And um, again, I was disappointed not only with the distinction he made, 
but also he didn't seem to even realize what he was saying, or if he did, he didn't feel, even in the presence of other ministers, you know, uh, that he should feel hesitant in saying it. So these kind of distinctions, these claims, are not just made by people crazy far, far away, right? Sometimes they're made also within our own circles. So now you've heard the one argument that's often made. I've given you five reasons why you shouldn't give any weight to this claim. And so I'm going to leave the testimony of Jesus and move next to the testimony of Paul. Remember, even though I think it's inappropriate to divide it up this way. So I'm just stopping for a second. So, you know, we're kind of shifting gears, right? We're driving. We put the foot on the clutch, if you remember that. We're shifting, right? So, so we're, we're kind of moving to a new set of arguments now, right? And, and, uh, and so it's going to take us a while to talk about Paul, about Paul. Now, before we get to the text that Paul wrote, let's just say a few things about Paul, right? So I asked you what ethnic group was Jesus, and I'm just, without insulting you, but, you know, it's good to have some participation. Make sure you're awake. What ethnic group did Paul belong to? He was a a Jew, yes. Was he maybe a liberal Jew? A person who kind of was embarrassed about his Jewish back, was he? No, he wasn't. No, he wasn't. In fact, he went to the Harvard School of Judaism, right? He trained at the feet of Gamaliel. That's where you're supposed to go, ooh. Yeah, because, I mean, even the New Testament Acts says that Gamaliel was, like, esteemed among all the Jewish people, right? I mean, you know, he went to the Harvard School of Judaism, and he himself testifies in his letters that he was actually ahead of everybody. He was like a superstar student, right? So, in other words, Paul is a Jew, and he knows the Jewish tradition, he knows the Jewish scriptures, and I simply remind you what we said about Jesus, right? The Jewish community was unanimous in rejecting same-sex activity. And so we should assume that Paul almost certainly shared that position. And if he didn't, because again, like Jesus, Paul said some things that were upsetting to Jews, right? Then we would read about them. They'd be written down. And we'd be reading about people maybe freaked out at him or were angry at him, right? So so our assumption should be that, that Paul, like Jesus, like all Jews of the first century, would not accept same-sex activity. That should be our starting point. Also, now, let's talk about his view on sex in general. So forget about same sex. Just talk about any kind of sex. Right? And is Paul uh, progressive? And the answer is no. I mean, uh, I think he's got a very healthy and robust view of human sexuality. Again, I hope I can convey that tomorrow in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 to 8. But, but when, you, when you look at his writings, just in general now, before we get bogged down in same sex, He's, he's got pretty conservative position. So what does this text say? Well, here's the one we'll look at, part of it tomorrow, that you should avoid sexual immorality, right? That each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans. Paul's no progressive. He's no liberal on human sexuality. Here's another text, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 11. This is where a man has a sexual relationship with his stepmother, and Paul's like, are you kidding me? Right? Are you kidding me? He says that kind of porneia, that kind of sexual morality isn't even found among the pagans. And you in Corinth are accepting it? Paul's like really upset. He can't believe what he's seeing or hearing about them. And then in the same letter in chapter 6, apparently there were some Christians, some Jesus followers in Corinth who thought it was perfectly okay to have sex with prostitutes. And Paul's like, what? Okay, again, he's really aghast. He's really upset. Because Paul's no liberal, he's no progressive when it comes to sex in general, 
right? He has a pretty strong, I'll say traditional conservative view on human sexuality. Here's another text if you want to know, Galatians. He has this vice list, right, where all the kind of sins that one should, should avoid or put to death, and then he lists in there sexual immorality. And then we could throw in Ephesians also for good measure where Paul says sexual immorality and impurity should not even be named among you. So we're starting off with what? Paul's a Jew who we should assume shared a unanimous Jewish perspective against same-sex activity. And the second general point we're making is when it comes to sex in general, forget about same-sex, Paul is pretty conservative. And so when it comes to same-sex, we're expecting him to probably have the same attitude, right? I mean, it's possible he didn't, but if he didn't, he would say so. And we might well read about some pushback, right, from some people who disagree with him. Paul did say also, like Jesus, some things that Jews and others didn't like. Actually, Paul says some things I don't like either. Because the selfish side of me, the sinful side of me says, oh, I wish I could avoid that, but no. Well, we looked at Paul the Jew and how Paul the Christian kind of generally looks things. Now we finally turn to his writings. And the truth is, very little is found anywhere in the Bible about same-sex activity. For the reasons we said already, because it wasn't a disputable thing, right? And uh, the three relevant texts in the New Testament all come from the Apostle Paul. So there are three, there are only three texts that explicitly or directly deal with same-sex activity, and they all come from the Apostle Paul. That's one reason why I'm reluctantly speaking about this matter, right? So a few years ago, I was at Synod and as an as a, as a, as a advisor, and I came home and said to my wife, I said, I think they're going to form a new study committee on human sexuality, and I'm afraid they're going to nominate me to be on it, I said, as long as they don't make me chairperson. Which all happened, by the way. Anyway, so, anyway. so, but my wife said, well, she said, Jeff, she said, how many Pauline experts are there in the world, right? How many, you know, are there in the Christian Reformed Church? I mean, you know, you have, you know, you have the expertise and the training. God's put you in a position. And so she kind of kicked me in the glutinous maximus and said, you know, if you get nominated, well, you should, you shouldn't bemoan that, right? So the reason I'm here tonight is because the clearest or really only explicit text in the New Testament are found in the letters of Paul. I'm a Pauline guy, by the way, right? I do a lot of stuff in Paul and his letters. So, so even the three texts are not very long or explicit. Because Paul, you know, Paul doesn't just write for the sake of writing. It's not like Paul has nothing better to do and kind of puts his feet up in the study and says, what shall I write about today? I don't know, maybe I'll write about the end times. I mean, Paul is always responding to specific problems, specific issues. And because the early church didn't really wrestle, generally speaking, with, uh, they did wrestle with sexual immorality in general, but not specifically uh, same-sex activity, Paul has very little to say. And when he talks about it, it's kind of in a general or passing way. But he does have three texts, and so for the next good long while, well, good long while, within limits, right, uh, I'm going to be looking at these three texts with you. Are you ready? Okay, good. Okay, well, cool. I know there's a lot of stuff here. So the first text, well, we're going to actually deal with 1 Corinthians 6, 9, the text we read earlier. And actually, there's not even a verse. Would you believe that the whole thing I'm going to talk about for the next few minutes has to do with two words? Two but very important words. 
So we have a vice list, right? We have these lists of all the bad things, all the things one shouldn't do if you uh, want to inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul says, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And here comes the list. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers. And then this phrase in bold, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, as we talked about earlier, nor drunkards, nor slanders, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that phrase in English, in bold, nor men who have sex with men. So I guess that's seven words. In Greek, those are only two words. Okay? And there's a bit of debate about these two words, and this is what we're going to be talking about for a while. It's kind of technical, but it, hey, there aren't many texts that talk about it, and this is an important text. Now, you could say, what's the big debate? Why, not, why don't you just tell me what these two Greek words mean? By the way, I wrote them in English here. You can sound them out. The first word is malakoi, malakoi, and the second word is arsenikoitai, arsenikoitai. So you say, there's a dictionary. I put it on there, right? That's actually a good academic, scholarly dictionary. Why don't I just look up in that dictionary under malakoi, look under the dictionary under arsenikoitai, and just tell me what it says. Now here we have to be a little bit careful. I have a few former students here. I won't put them on the spot, but one of the whimisms that I teach is Every translation involves interpretation. Every translation involves interpretation. In other words, you can't perfectly go from one language to another language, right, without some subjectivity, especially if there are key words, you know, and there's some debate about it. So how have these two words been understood? Well, here we go. So, I'm going to call, well, there's a traditional view, and then what do you call a non-traditional view? I guess I could call it non-traditional. I'm calling it tonight revisionist. Some people don't like that term. They think it's somehow negative. I don't mean it negative, but I mean it's people who know what the traditional view is, right? And now they want the church to revise their understanding, right? So I think it's fair to call it. It could be good, it could be bad, I don't know. There's nothing wrong with talking about revising things, right? So, so I'm going to call these alternate views, these non-traditional views, revisionist, all right? So if you meet a revisionist, and maybe you have, maybe you are one, right? What's one of the arguments you might say on this regard? Here it comes. One very common argument is to say this. Egghead professors like Wyma have no idea what these two terms mean. And because we're not certain about what these two terms mean, therefore we can't really use this verse to make any conclusions. With me? In other words, this verse is uncertain. And so who would, you know, you can't rest, you know, a definitive point on something that's, you know, ambiguous or debatable. Here's a, a person, David Gushy who goes around and speaks, you know, and, and this is a book uh, he wrote not too long ago. He wrote, quote, very high-level scholarly uncertainty about the meaning and translation of these two Greek words undermines claims to the conclusiveness of Malakoi and Arsenikoitai for resolving the LGBT issue, all right? In fact, uh, maybe you know the name Nicholas Walterstorff kind of a well-known philosopher in the world, a well-known person in the Christian Reformed Church, and he has given a couple of public talks in West Michigan, even though he says, I'm not a biblical theologian. 
but then goes ahead to explain text, right? I've heard him say, you know, biblical scholars have no idea what these two terms mean, and therefore we shouldn't spend any time, you know, looking at something like that. And I'm going like, wait a minute. I do. I'm a New Testament person. Okay. So, so this is one common claim made. Here's another argument, but on the same two words, right? Here's another revisionist argument. So the first argument is, we don't know what these terms mean. We can't draw anything from it. The second argument is, we know what these words mean, and they mean something very narrow and specific, which is different from monogamous, long-term, same-sex activities. So here you can see that some scholars argue that the two terms should be translated what? Malachi should be translated as pederast. What's pederast? Well, it refers to an older man who has a sexual relationship with, it's often misunderstood. In the ancient world, it's not a boy, actually. You would say it a, a teen, you know, young man. But anyway, pederasty refers to an older man having a sexual relationship with a younger I'll say preen or teen or something like that, all right? Oh, and the second word, or senekoitai, that refers to male prostitutes. So what's the consequence if you translate it this way? They would say, Paul is not against all forms of same-sex activity. Paul is only against special forms of same-sex activity. What kind of special forms, same, forms of same-sex activity is Paul against? Well, he's against pederasty. What's wrong with pederasty? Well, you have a power manipulation. You have an older, powerful male who's abusing their power, abusing a younger boy, right? That would be wrong, they would say. Oh, and male prostitution. So if a person would use their body you know, for sex or make money for sex, that's an abuse of the body. So again, they would say it's wrong to say from this verse that Paul is against all forms of same-sex activity. He's just against some forms of same-sex activity, abusive forms. And that's not what we're talking about today, they would argue. If you're talking about a mutual, agreed-upon, long-term, monogamous, same-sex relationship, that's not what Paul is talking about. And then they would go one step further. He's not only not condemning it, he would be supposedly open to that. Some of you are looking at me strange. I didn't make up these arguments. I'm just telling you, this is a, these, are, these are, for the few people who are willing to wrestle with what the Bible says, these are claims that are commonly made. So there are two kinds of revisionist arguments, just to make sure you understand them, right? The first argument is, we don't know what these terms mean, and therefore it would be wrong for someone along today to come along and make conclusions from it. The second argument is, we do know what they say, and what they say is it only refers to abusive forms of same-sex relationship. It doesn't refer to non-abusive, mutually agreed upon, long-term monogamous same-sex relationships. So there are two versions of the revisionist argument. So, so now I'm going to respond and evaluate those. Oh, there's a quote from another person who, who, who has the second one, so you can look at that later, sorry. Now again, notice I have um, response number one, and so if you're looking at your watch, when I'm going to be done, you'll be disappointed because there's going to be number two, number three, and number Four, I got four different responses to these two revisionist arguments. Here we go. The first response I have is, you can see it, there's a word for that. In other words, the Greek language does have special words for same-sex activity. So if Paul were thinking about, let's take, for instance, pederasty, 
Actually, you know, the English word pederasty comes from a Greek word, which sounds exactly the same. So if Paul were talking about pederasty, why didn't he use the Greek word pederasty? You understand, right? So. And what's more, there are two special words to describe this relationship between an older man and a younger man. There are two special words. So if Paul were talking about this power in, you know, this power abuse relationship, Paul could have used those two terms. So, so that's the first problem, right? If Paul were indeed narrowly thinking about abusive forms of same-sex activity like pederasty, there's a word for that. There are a couple words for that, actually, and Paul didn't use them. I would say, because he's talking about all forms of same-sex activity, not just special forms. If you don't find that convincing, here's the second argument. It's a little bit complicated, especially as we get on in the evening, so don't lose me. And that is, we interpret Scripture with Scripture. I'm sure you've heard that before, right? Interpreting Scripture with Scripture. Here's a little version. Let's take a longer, clearer passage of Scripture on same-sex activity and have that interpret this shorter and not-so-clear text on same-sex activity. This is shorter, right? Because it's not even a verse, it's just two words, and it's not so clear because apparently there's a debate about the meaning of these words, right? So, so I'm going to go to a longer text, a clearer text about same-sex activity, and there aren't many. There are only three in the New Testament, and so I'm going to Romans. I'm going to go to Romans later. I'm just going to Romans now just for a moment, okay? Because, I, because there are two things in the Roman text that help us understand something about the two words in the first Corinthian text. That's why it sounds like you're in school, doesn't it? I mean, you're like, oh man, this is hard, isn't it? Yes. Well, we... This is an important subject. We should make sure that we think carefully about it, right? It's not something lightly to talk about. And I'm taking seriously these other arguments, and, and so I'm, I'm, I'm going to take them so seriously, I'm going to respond to them appropriately, hopefully. So, so two things in the Roman text. First of all, in Romans, Paul talks about women having sex with other women. Why is that relevant for the two words in 1 Corinthians? Because... In the Roman world, this relationship between an older man and a younger preen or whatever, right, that was only a rela that pederasty relationship, that was only with males. It was never ever with females. We don't read in the ancient text about an older female who has a, some kind of relationship with you, okay, right? So in other words, if Paul in Corinthians, remember the counter argument is, Paul's not talking about all forms of same sex. He's only talking about abusive forms, pederasty, right? However, if Paul were only talking about pederasty, he wouldn't say in Romans, women having sex with women, because that kind of thing didn't happen in pederasty, right? Instead, Paul mentions in Romans, women having sex with women and men having sex with men. Why does Paul mention both? Because Paul, in Romans, and now also in 1 Corinthians, is speaking against all forms of same-sex activity. Does that make sense, right? Not just abusive forms, not just special forms. And then the other thing that Paul mentions in Roman is helpful for understanding 1 Corinthians, and that is because if I'm a revisionist, and I said, now, the real problem Paul has with this text is abuse of power, right? Paul's against an older man abusing physically in his power a younger boy or something like that, right? If that's the case, who's to blame in, the, in, the, in that relationship? Only the older Man, right? Because the younger boy is just a victim, right? But that doesn't work in Romans, because if you read in Romans, Paul says about now men and women having sex with each other, they were consumed in passion for one another. 
Did you catch that? Not just the one for the one, but for one another. And then he goes on to say, and um, receiving in themselves. He doesn't say receiving in himself, like the older man being the Receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. In other words, in the Roman text, Paul blames both parties in the same sex relationship, which, remember, according to the Corinthians in the revisionist view, Paul is only against the one half, right? The abusive older half. So the Roman texts clarify that Paul is not, in fact, talking about an abusive form in 1 Corinthians. He's, again, talking about all forms of same-sex activity. Whew, this is hard work, isn't it? I mean, it is, a little bit. But it's serious business. Now, here's another hard argument, and that is... Almost everyone agrees with these two words, malakoi and arsenikoitai. The second word is kind of unusual for a lot of reasons. So just now, the second word of the two. Just the second word of the two, arsenikoitai. Almost everyone believes that Paul is borrowing this word. He is echoing this word from Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20. Now, first of all, let's just make sure we talk about the plausibility of Paul even knowing Leviticus 18 and 20, let alone alluding to it. I mean, is it feasible that Paul would know, simply know what Leviticus 18 and 20 said? Is it feasible? Yes, because we said that he's a Jew, a very conservative Jew, went to the Harvard School of Judaism. Okay, yeah, so it's not at all crazy to believe that Paul knows that in Leviticus 18 and 19, which talks about men having sex with men, right? And it's not at all crazy that Paul would be alluding to this, that he would be kind of expecting uh, here maybe to pick up on that connection. And, and why is that important? Because if he is referring to Leviticus 18 and 20, first of all, maybe I should make sure to highlight the connection. So remember the word we're talking about is, I can try it over here so you can see it, the word is arsenakoitai, right? And in English, the two verses, 18.22 says, and with a male you shall not sleep as with a woman. That's the one key text from the Old Testament. And then the other text, Leviticus 20.13, right? Uh, and whoever will sleep with a male as with a woman. Now in both of them, all right, but especially the second one. Let's see, uh-oh, I'm hitting the wrong button. It's this button right there it is. Okay, right there. Okay, I got it. You see there? Even if you don't know Greek, remember the word is arsenakoitai. I mean, I don't know. You, know, you can see, see how similar that is? Arsenas koitai, right? So in the New Testament, Paul says arsenakoitai, and the vast majority of New Testament scholars believe that he's alluding to these two, two texts, because they refer to arsenakoitai. Why is that significant? Because these Old Testament texts, again, refer not just to a limited type of same-sex activity, but in a more comprehensive or broad form of same-sex activity. Remember, progressives or revisionists are arguing that Paul's not against all forms of same-sex activity, only special forms, only abusive forms. And so that's why if he's alluding to this Old Testament text, and the Old Testament text has a broad form in mind, well, that undermines the idea that Paul in 1 Corinthians has only a limited group in mind. It's likely that he has all forms in mind. Okay, some of you are like this. Okay, and again, I, these, are, these are the facts, right? These are the, the details of the text that we ought to consider in this somewhat significant, serious discussion. Now, there's one more argument. 
One more argument, and it's actually a pretty important one. It's probably why I have it last in a kind of climactic position. And I asked the question, why these two terms? Remember, there are two words, malakoi and arsenikoitai. Why does Paul have two? Is that significant? Why, did, why wouldn't he just have one? Why both terms? Is there something significant about him having them both together? And the answer I'm going to suggest is yes. I haven't said anything yet much about the first word, malakoi, so I'll do so now. The word malakoi literally means to be soft. Soft. Just generally speaking. So, uh, I don't know, my wife's got a coat over here. I could say it's malakoi. It's nice and soft. You know, I wake up in the morning, we turn our heat down at night, you know, like 57. I wake up in the morning and I, I get the butter out, you know, because I'm going to put some of my bread and oh, doggone it, you know, it's, it's not, it's hard, okay? So, malakoi literally means just to be soft. However, when it was used of men sometimes, right? So sometimes people back then would refer to man as a malakoi. What did that mean? That they were soft in terms of their masculinity. So a soft person, a malakoi person, is a male person who comes across as a, well, has female characteristics, right? Either in the way they act or the way they talk or the things that they do. Malakoi. I'll come back to that term in a minute. The other term, arsenikoitai, is made up of two words. Arsen, which is the word for male, and koitai has to do with the word for bed. So arsenikoitai means to go to bed with, not with the person you expect, not with a woman, but to go to bed with a man, right? Now, in the Roman world, this is important, in the Roman world, there was no shame... By the way, honor, shame in the ancient world, right? We're kind of shameless here in the States, so we kind of don't appreciate that. I mean, in Asia today, right, Middle East today, in the ancient world, honor, shame was a big, big deal. So when I say shame, it's, it's a big deal. In the Roman world, it was not considered shameful for a man to penetrate another man. Why? Because the first man is still playing the male role. However, if you were a man who allowed another man to penetrate you, that was considered shameful, because now you're not playing the male role, you're playing the female role. Did you catch that? So again, in the ancient world, it's not the case that they accepted same sex as if it were nothing. It all depends on who's having sex with whom, right? So for the man who penetrates another man, that first man, there's no shame. But for the man who allows himself to be penetrated, that was considered shameful, which was a big deal in the ancient world. So what you find here, I think Paul is doing this. Malakoi refers to a man who is soft, who plays the female role, who allows himself to be penetrated by another man, right? Which the Roman world considered to be shameful. Paul mentions that. And then in the same breath, he, mat he, he naturally mentions the, the pair, right? The opposite of a malakoi is the other in the same-sex partner, the man who penetrates another man, right? And the Roman world didn't consider that to be shameful, but Paul listed as something that is wrong. In other words, Paul deliberately picks these two terms to pick up both halves, both partners in a same-sex relationship. And this is actually picked up in... Two very important translations. Uh, have you ever heard of the NIV before? 
Actually, it has some roots in, I think, Chicago, right? Christian Reformed Churches. Anyway, and then there's the ESV. Have you ever heard of the ESV? It's interesting that both the NIV and the NIV have a footnote on these two words that say exactly the same thing. I don't know who's plagiarizing who. Okay. So, so let's look at that for a minute. Maybe I could go over here. I'm looking at this quote right over here, right? So it says, the words, quote, men who have sex with men. See, that's the translation given in your NIV, the newer NIV and in the ESV. So the translation, men who have sex with other men, translate two Greek words. Does that sound familiar to you now? I've been talking about two Greek words for the last 10 minutes or 15, right? Okay. right. That refer to the, here comes, the passive, first word, malakoi, and active, second word, arsenikoitai, participants in homosexual acts. So the bottom line is this. Paul deliberately uses two words because unlike his day, which only thought the one was shameful and the other was okay, right? Paul comes along and says, no, both are wrong. Right? Both the malakoi, the one who allows himself to be penetrated, the passive partner, and the arsenikoitai, the active, the penetrator, both are included in that list of things that people ought not to do unless if they want to inherit the kingdom of God. So again, I've been spending almost maybe even 15 minutes, I haven't kept track, explaining these two words. Four different explanations to show that actually New Testament people do have a pretty clear understanding of what these words say. And secondly, what they say is not just abusive forms of same-sex relationship, but Paul pretty clearly, in all these arguments, seems to be talking about, again, any form of same-sex relationship, even including, this is the language we hear a lot of today, long-term monogamous same-sex relations. Okay, we probably don't. Well, we're going to skip over uh, the, the reference to our Senecoitai is found in 1 uh, Timothy 1.10. So there's just a couple of comments. And in a way, all the things I've said about our Senecoitai for, for 1 Corinthians 6 are going to be applicable for the same word in 1 Timothy 1.10. And so I want to go on and say some things about the Romans text now itself that Paul opposes, but excessive desire, which directs itself toward what is not rightly ours, overcoming self-control and obedience to God. So again, the Romans isn't talking about controlled sex, either heterosexual or even homosexual sex. Romans is just talking about out-of-control desire, so out-of-control that heterosexual people will have sex with same-sex people. Okay. That's one relatively common argument that revisionists make. So how am I going to respond to that? Well, we, 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 I think, have a sense that every passage of Bible should be interpreted in its context. So when we look at the larger context of Romans 1, what's going on? Well, it's the beginning of a long, long letter that Paul is writing to a church that he didn't start, and they don't know him, and they're a little suspicious of him. But Anyway, at the beginning of Romans, Paul is trying to highlight that all humanity has a problem, and it's called, it's not, not the sex word, it's another S word, it's worse than sex, it's sin, that's right. Some people nowadays, you know, let's not talk about the S word in church, and they don't mean sex, they mean 
sin because that's harsh and negative, right? Well, anyway, Paul, at the beginning of Romans, uh, for three chapters, right, he's going to spend a chapter or so on the Gentiles, saying that they have a problem called sin. And then when the Jewish Christians are just feeling good for themselves, Paul will, in chapter 2, talk about them and say they've got the problem. And then it leads to the conclusion. You probably know the conclusion in chapter 3. Paul says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? All have sinned means not just Gentile, but also Jews. So in chapter 1, Paul is in the first phase of that argument, and he's talking about Gentiles, and he's trying to highlight the fact that Gentiles have a problem called sin. Okay? And from a Jewish point of view, this is so typical. If you're a Jew in the first century and you think about Gentiles, you kind of roll your eyes and say, ha, we all know about Gentiles. The two things all Gentiles are guilty of. There are two things that all Gentiles we have to worry about. And one is idolatry. The Jews, of course, are here. O Israel, the Lord our God is... Wow, okay. So God, they're worshiping all gods, Greek gods, Roman gods, Egyptian gods, you know, the imperial cult, right? So that's the first big sin, idolatry. And the second big sin that all Gentiles commit, from a Jewish point of view, is porneia, sexual immorality, right? Those are the two classic Gentile sins. And Paul, not surprisingly, picks up both of them. Paul's a good Jew. He, he knows how this argument goes. Now, when Paul talks about the sins, the Gentile sins of idolatry and sex, Paul is not saying, he's not arguing that, it's, that each of these are okay, they're just not okay in an excessive amount. In other words, Paul isn't going to say a little bit of idolatry is okay. Normal idolatry is okay, I'm just against excessive idolatry, right? And in a similar way, Paul's not going to say a little bit of sexual pornea is okay, right? I'm just against excessive, you see this? And so that's Paul's argument over here, right? He says that um, the biggest problem that Gentiles have is they're worshiping creator things instead of the one creator. That's the problem. They're guilty of idolatry. And Paul's, again, not going to accept a little bit of idolatry. He's against all forms of idolatry. And not surprisingly, when he talks later on in chapter 1, the very context we're looking at, he's not just talking about normal sex, or a little bit of sexual, sexual morality, I should say, he, in, which is the argument here. He's, a, he's against all forms of pornea, inappropriate sexual activity. So that's the first problem with the excessive lust or passion argument. Here's another argument. Because Paul says, the problem with these women having sex with women, and the problem with these men having sex with other men, is they're acting, quote, against their nature, against their nature. And so the question is, what is that nature that Paul is talking about? Revisionists say that they're acting against their sexual nature. So in other words, Paul is saying the problem, in other words, they're saying the problem is this. You have heterosexuals, right, who have a nature. They have an attraction toward the opposite sex. But they're so filled with passion that they have sex with even their own sex. They're acting against their nature. Their what nature? Their sexual nature. You catch that? And so they kind of, that's what they argue the problem is. And then they would argue, so it's, the real problem is just people acting against their sexual nature. So the problem is when heterosexuals are so filled with passion they have sex with same-sex people, and conversely, this now, right? This is clever. 
not very convincing, but it's clever. The problem with same-sex attracted people is, is they're so filled with passion that once in a while they have sex with opposite the sex, okay? because they're not acting according to their sexual nature. You see, the problem is you've got heterosexuals who have a natural nature, sexual nature, you have homosexuals who have a natural, right? And Paul's against both of them acting against their sexual nature. Now, I suggest to you this is not a very convincing argument because against nature doesn't refer to their sexual nature, but their, almost everyone would say, their created nature. And the strength of this interpretation is the idea that Paul says that the problem with same-sex activities are acting against their what nature there? Few people are listening, so the rest of you are sleeping? Or what? Okay, created nature. I know, I know in church you don't say things, okay, but it's okay, you can do that. Right? So, so the strength of that would be, can we see anywhere in Romans that Paul has allusions to the Genesis account? Why the Genesis account? Well, because that's where we read about Creation, okay? And um, it's embarrassing how clear the allusions are to the Genesis account in, in, in Romans 1, frankly. Are you ready? Here, here comes some of the text. So um, in chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says, for the creation of the world. I don't know about you, but when he says since the creation of the world, I think you know, maybe, just maybe, he's thinking about when the Bible talks about the creation of the world in early Genesis, Right? But it's more than that. 123, it refers to the combination of birds and animals and reptiles. And that's exactly what we find in the Old Testament, especially the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Genesis 130. 125 is very striking. Paul in 125 refers to God not as God, not as Father. Paul refers to God as Creator, and I suggest to you, duh, he said creator because he was probably thinking of God in a very specific role, in his role as creator. I mean, that's not a stretch, is it? I mean, this seems pretty clear from the context. And then we've got two more, at least one more. The reference to women and men. In Greek, this is a little different than male and female, right? There's a special word. You can see our sentence, which you mentioned earlier. And so almost everyone agrees that the phrase male and female, he created them. That's what Paul says is an echo of, what, Paul, of what, uh, the, what the Genesis account means. So these five pretty clear allusions to the creation account strengthens the case that when Paul says the problem with same-sex activity is they're acting against their nature, he's really saying they're acting against their what nature? Their created nature, okay? In other words, God created men, right, to have sex with women, okay, right? And when men have sex with men and women have sex with women, they're acting against their created nature. All right, we're almost at the end, time-wise and, uh, and also slide-wise. We have a few more things. Um, now, Let's imagine you're here tonight and um, you're unhappy with me, okay? Because you've thought about this and maybe you've even studied it, maybe even heard people from revisionists, okay? And you're thinking to yourself, okay, Wyma, uh, you know, yes, you sound pretty good now, but, you know, we could bring in Brownson, we could bring in somebody else, you know, some other egghead, and they would take the same text and spin it a completely different way. Right? 
So how can I convince you that I'm not unduly biased, you know, that somehow, you know, my traditional position is somehow twisting the meaning of these texts. How can I convince you? Well, here's one, I hope, possible way. I'm going to find a person who's a true revisionist. Even more than that, I'm going to call them a liberal, right? People who proudly identify themselves as liberals. And not only that, they're experts in the ancient world in terms of sexuality, and I'm going to show you that they agree with my interpretation. So, so, so here's the first guy. I, I somewhat jokingly call him Dr. Sex. His name is actually William Loder. He's a, well, he's like me. He's a New Testament professor, so he's a New Testament egghead. He lives in Australia, and he's kind of developed a whole career in talking about sex in the ancient world. Not exciting books, okay, but uh, very scholarly books. I only have, he's written like eight of them. I, could, I couldn't fit them all on the screen, okay? So, so for instance, um, let's look at the Dead Sea Scrolls on sexuality. I'm sure you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Have you heard of them? So, so he went through all the writings of the Dead Sea Scrolls and anything they had to say on sex, not just same sex, anything on sex, he wrote a book on it. Okay, there it is. Or um, there it is, Philo, Josephus, and the Testaments. Maybe not many of you have heard of Philo or Josephus, right? I know our pastors have, but these are are uh, people who lived, you know, around the New Testament time. They wrote a lot. Anyway, so he read all their writings, and whatever they had to say about sex, he wrote a book on, on that. I go on and on and on. And so not surprisingly, when, he, when he's looking at all the books of the first century, he goes to the New Testament, and anything the New Testament says about sex, he wrote a book on that, okay? So he's Dr. Sex. I mean, anybody who writes eight books on sex in the ancient world, right, at least is an expert or a knowledgeable guy, right? Okay, and I've already identified him as a, well, I mean, he, he identifies himself as a liberal, right? He, he, uh, he's, he's, he's not a traditionalist in any way. Now, one of the things that I found very striking is this. So, so this expert in ancient world on the issues of sex has looked at now New Testament scholars' interpretations of Paul especially those revisionist arguments, he's looked at those, and now he's going to comment on them, all right? So he's going to comment on revisionist arguments. So not, not, notice what he says. He says, I'm going to have to do it this way so you can... So he says, for those of us whose understanding of scriptural authority does not entail such things. So, so in other words, he's not a conservative. He doesn't believe the Bible is the inspired and authoritative word. So he, he explicitly says, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not like those other people these revisionists, he says, he says, we can only stand and wonder at the, this is big, extraordinary maneuvers which have been undertaken to reread Paul as not condemning homosexual relations at all. Did you catch that? So he's looking at the revisionist arguments, I've given you them tonight, right? He looks at them and he says, he says, we can only stand back and wonder at the, he calls it, extraordinary, what? Maneuvers, right? To somehow say that Paul was not against same-sex activity. You see, for Dr. Sex, his conclusion is, of course Paul was against same-sex activity, right? But he says, why should we listen to him? <laughs> right, I mean, he, he's just a human guy who lived a long time ago, and his words have no authority for us for today. I mean, of course Paul was against same-sex, but don't listen to him. So, 
I want, to, I want to use him as a witness, right? If you think that I'm an ultra-conservative who's manipulating and twisting the text to say something, you know, that they don't say, I'm saying even this radical liberal agrees with my interpretation tonight that the proper interpretation of these texts is, is that sexual activity among same-sex right, attracted activity is, in Paul's mind, sinful and inappropriate, okay? And I have another voice like that, but uh, I'm just running a little bit late, and I, I want to wrap it up. So there's another person who's a kind of a, a leading progressive figure who says something very similar. Now, do we have to switch a tape? Do we need a little pause here, or what? The microphone took care of it. Okay, good. So I'm, I'm almost done here, all right? And then we'll have a time for Q&A. Now, I'm trying to say this. When I look at what the Bible says, I haven't talked about the Old Testament, I just focus on the New Testament, but, but I would suggest you big C words, right? When you look at the whole testimony of Scripture on the same-sex issue, the testimony of the Bible is clear. That's a big word, because there are some things the Bible talks about that are not so clear. But on this subject, the Bible is, I'm suggesting to you, clear. It's also consistent. In other words, what you find in the New Testament text all agree with each other, and they support what you find in the Old Testament. So they're clear, they're consistent, and as a result, they're compelling. In a way, you know, it would be easier for me if the Bible were less clear and not so consistent. Because then maybe there'd be some wiggle room, you know what I mean, to not make this such a to say, kind of a line in the sand issue for some people, right? But I, I, you know, I can't help it, right? I mean, the Bible is clear, consistent, and compelling. And that has some important implications for how we ought to respond in today's context. Now, we need to end, though, with a word of grace. And so I'm, I'm hoping that you'll hear the very detailed, sober arguments of the text. You remember my preliminary introductions and preliminary comments, and now you also hear these final words. What about grace? So one, I think for sure, we ought to highlight the dignity of celibacy. I think that for far too long, the church, and actually the Christian Reformed Church, has had a, a too negative view of celibacy. I mean, it wasn't that long ago in the Christian Reformed Church, we counted not how many members we have, but how many families we have. I mean, just think about what that says to those who are not married, who are single, right? Somehow we think that celibacy is weird, you know, it's something that Catholic priests do, and look at all the problems they get into, you know, right? And yet, uh, when you look at the New Testament, Jesus was single, pretty hard for you to come up with a problem with that, right? The Apostle Paul was almost certainly single, as another example. And both Jesus and Paul do highlight, I would say, the dignity, the worthiness of a celibate life. Now, some people are not same-sex attracted. They're heterosexuals, but for whatever reason, they can't find a marriage partner, and they have to live a celibate life. We should, we should be very empathetic or, or supportive of that, right? And conversely, there are some people who are same-sex attracted, and they are perhaps compelled by the scriptures and through the leading of the Holy Spirit to also live a celibate life, and we ought to honor that. 
that shouldn't be considered as us by us as second rate or weird or strange. We, we ought to highlight the, the, the value, the dignity of a celibate life. So I think that's one important thing. By the way, Paul has some strong statements if you disagree with me. Look at 1 Corinthians 7. I wish that all of you were as I am, right? Single. Now to the unmarried and to the widows, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. At the very end of that whole long chapter 7 discussion, Paul says in a summary verse, the one who refrains from marriage will do better. Marriage is good, but those who remain single are doing better. I mean, in a certain sense, you know, when my daughter comes to me and says, Dad, I'm getting married, I say, well, that's a little disappointing, but okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, in the sense of, you know. Secondly, this goes back to a comment I made earlier. We have to be way, way, way better at enfolding people who have a same-sex attraction. I've said it at the beginning, I say it again. God has created us with a desire for fellowship, right? Where we have an innate desire, you know, to be with others. And if the church marginalizes same-sex attracted people, they're going to not surprisingly go to communities that will accept them. And most of those communities, right, will encourage them to engage in behavior that Scripture disallows. So that puts a lot of pressure on the church to be a lot more accepting, a lot more encouraging. You know, we, we have this old gospel hymn, you know, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God, right? And, uh, you know, I've noticed, you know, in West Michigan, you know, I'm a person who has no family, genetic family living around me, you know, and there are lots and lots of people, maybe they're like that in Chicago, who are so busy just trying to, you know, keep up with their genetic family, they don't have a lot of time and room in their life for their spiritual brothers and sisters. And so the church really, really needs to be much more proactive, right? regardless of same-sex or heterosexual, right? There are other people who are single, you know, who, who ought to be embraced and uh, really feel the family of God, you know, the, the, the thing that binds us together, you know, Christ and, and the gospel. And then, um, this is what I hope to preach on tomorrow, right? Um, the sanctity of sex. Um, you know, Paul... I mean, sex is not something that's bad or embarrassing or dirty. Uh, you know, um, this is something that God, according to Paul and the rest of the Bible, God created, right? Sex between a man and a woman within the covenant relationship of marriage is a good and wonderful thing for which we can and ought to give thanks. And so uh, there's really a call for the church to sanctify sex. And remember, I started talking about pornography. It really is the case, and I've seen studies, unfortunately, you know, that a great, great percentage of the church, many more members of the church today are negatively impacted by pornography than the number of people who are negatively impacted by same sex. And so there really ought to be a challenge on each of us, you know, to be a little more broad when we think about holiness in sexuality, right? We're not just picking on a select group of people and then holding up unfair demands on them, this is a call for holiness to all followers of Jesus Christ. And one last, last point, and that is, when I talk to same-sex attracted people who are followers of Jesus and who are living by the power of the Holy Spirit of celibate life, 
almost always they want to say things like, you shouldn't feel sorry for me, I'm a happy person, right? I mean, my identity, they say, is not because of my, my sexuality, you know? When you think of me, you shouldn't think of me as a heterosexual or as a homosexual, right? My identity is rooted in my relationship to Christ, right? As a Christian, as a follower of Jesus and the gospel, right? And that's the thing that ought to bind us together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, it is time for me to bring the presentation to a close. And uh, I'm going to look to Matt, and he's going to facilitate uh, whatever questions you may have, and I'll attempt. I can only attempt. I'm not promising anything to respond in hopefully helpful ways. Minute for. So we have a couple people who were going to collect these cards if you had the chance to write a question. So if you had a question, could you pass those? Um, I guess we'll kind of pass them out that way, and people will come down these two aisles. So if you have a question, you want to pass it out. Um, but thanks, Dr. Wyma, for giving us a really, really clear and detailed picture of what the Bible has to say, and then landing on that note of grace and how we live that out today. Uh, we want to open up for questions that have to do with anything with the presentation, uh, with the biblical data, or if you have questions about um, how we live as Christians in our contemporary culture, how we respond to different challenges with human sexuality. Uh, the floor is open for any question. Um, as Dr. Wymas said, we may or may not be able to give you the answer or the answer that you want, but we can certainly try. So um, we'll take just a moment, kind of collect the questions. Uh, we may do a couple rounds of this depending on what time allows for. So if you think of one along the line, still write it and we'll see if we have time to get to a few more. All right, we're going to start with an easy one for you. I, I like the sound of that. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you can answer this one. So 1 Corinthians 6, 9, is there an and between the two Greek words, malakoi and arsinokoite, or does Greek not have and? Um, it, it's just listing, you know, and, and uh, these are vice lists that we meet in Paul, and the opposite of vice lists are virtue lists, right? They're just lists of attributes that either Christians positively should exemplify or negatively should avoid. And there's been some question about whether Paul inherited some of them. You know, like uh, they're almost like a fixed, like a preacher might have a list of things. And so it looks like Paul has kind of shaped and adapted them to fit a particular context. So, so those two terms occur, of course, in a chapter where you have the man having a sexual relationship with his stepmother, right? So there is... Not same sex in the context, but the, but the idea of sexual, inappropriate sexual behavior. But anyway, those two terms are just listed beside each other. Malakoi and arsenokoita, yeah. Okay. Um, let me, looking through these, I'm going to give you three questions that are all in the same vicinity, so you can kind of pick how you answer them. Okay. Um, how can we show grace to those who are gay and married already? What should our actions be to family members who want us to celebrate their gay or lesbian love with them? And um, should we attend gay weddings? Uh -huh. 
So how should we show grace to those who are already gay and married? Um, how, what should our action be to family members who want us to celebrate gay, lesbian love with them? And should we, as Christians, attend gay weddings? You can mm -hmm. kind of pick how you want to navigate and, through those. And none of those are easy questions. So, <laughs> we didn't come here for easy no. questions, right? Well, let's begin by saying, you know, we, we often distinguish between, you know, what the Bible says, the then and there of the text, and the here and now of today, right? So, so there, there are two separate things. What I did tonight, I focus more on the then and there of the text, how God calls us to live. And now the next step is, once we know God's will for our lives, how do we apply it here and now, right? And, and that's not an always easy connection. It's not just a blind whatever was there we do over here because the situation today is quite different in our culture and society. So I'm just saying that this is a move we make in other topics, which is also kind of sometimes challenging and difficult. And without trying to sound wishy-washy, um, it also depends on the context. So the first question has to be with, what do you do, how should you deal with same-sex people who are already married, I heard, right? Well, um, it seems to me you should treat them like the way you treat any person who is a fellow image bearer. You treat them with respect and with kindness, right? You're not mean to them. You're not going to ridicule them. You're not going to uh, ins insult them. You're going to treat like any person, right? Now, what if they start, I mean, maybe that's just showing kindness and friendship, right? Okay, that's not a hard thing. Now, I don't know if the person means what if they start coming to your church, right? What if a same-sex attracted couple came to this congregation, right? How would you do that? Well, okay, it gets a little trickier, but it seems to me we still show hospitality, like any stranger coming in, right? We still treat them appropriately, but I would suspect that pretty quickly they would hear, right, not only the gospel, the general gospel, but they would hear the implications of that gospel for their daily life. And um, we shouldn't, ex just like we wouldn't expect an unbeliever to become not only a believer, but then suddenly to remove, you know, to have their whole life completely radically changed just like that. We have fancy words, you know, from justification to sanctification, right? We, there, there has to be a little bit of uh, grace, right, for this transformation. Well, all of us are still working on that sanctification. So you have to at least be somewhat tolerant for the same-sex couple, right? Um, every situation might be different. It might depend on the relationship that the pastor, I'm looking at the pastor, has with this couple or if they had contacts with the couple, right? Um, somewhere along the line, you know, that might involve a, a, an appropriate conversation saying, you know, we're so excited that you've come to us and you enjoy worshiping with us, right? But, you know, we, we want you to know who we are and what we stand for, right? And, and so it shows a certain amount of of care and tact, you know, and in not only speaking the truth, but to make sure that, uh, you know, they're, they're not offended in any way. Now, some people might disagree where to go next. I mean, it might be different if they want to be a member or if they just want to attend, right? It might be different if they just want to attend or if they want to partake in the sacraments. Those are kind of discussions that we can think about. What I've heard is, in some cases, it doesn't happen easily or, or quickly or naturally. In some cases, people have walked alongside of such a couple, and then as they're exposed to the gospel and as the Holy Spirit takes work on their life, they do actually realize at a later point that this relationship is unacceptable. 
remember the person on my committee, she wasn't married, but you know, she came to a point and she made a change, right? And so there has to be a certain amount of time for the church to be tolerant, if you will, right? Doesn't mean to tolerate the sin, but to be appropriate, you know, for this to happen. So again, it's hard to be, we, we can't nail, it's not like a law, right? You do step A, B, C, D, right? So, so we have, that's, that's that question. Now, the same thing is true, what about family members and what about weddings and things like that? And, and, and this falls into some category, you know, that I don't have a lot of, and that's wisdom. Wisdom, again, is not law, right? I mean, if you, have, you have to know in what circumstances you should do this, but in other circumstances you would do that. I mean, there's so many variables in this situation, right? There are just so many variables. Am I asked, as, am I asked to officiate a wedding? Oh, that, that's... That's maybe a little clearer, you know, for me, right? As opposed to um, my nephew who's same-sex attracted is getting married, right? What kind of relationship do I have with my nephew, right? Is he a nephew I never see and have no closeness with, or is it somebody that I have a long history with and I walk through, right? I mean, how would my nephew respond to my coming or my not coming? I mean, how would others view my coming or not coming, right? I mean, these are all kind of questions that are appropriate. And again, I, I, I just can't say yes to this or no. I do think there's a danger in kind of laying down a law, right, and saying, mm, you know, absolutely not, and da-da-da-da-da. I'm not arguing that you should, but uh, I'm saying that every situation is unique. And that means also that when we, when we watch other people go through this process, that we also should extend a bit of grace to such people, because, you know, we don't know all the dynamics, right? I mean, I, I know that we may have an opinion on the matter, right? But we don't know all the circumstances. And, and so we have to be a little more charitable than maybe we might normally or automatically be, you know, when people wrestle through these, through these, uh, through these difficult questions, yeah. I mean, I don't know why it would be any different than, I mean, we have this too, right, dear? We have a, we have a, 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 a niece, Right, who's been living with her boyfriend for almost three years. Now they're finally getting married this summer. Okay, right? Should we go or should we not go, right? Why is it any different, right? What do we say if we go? What do we say we don't go? I mean, you know, we think that their three years living together is inappropriate. By the way, I don't know why the church seemingly is okay with that and then would freak out at same-sex people talking about we're not being fair, we're not being equal, are we, right? Anyway, um, that's a feeble attempt that I think I covered the three questions, wasn't it? Good enough for me. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I especially appreciated you making that distinction between laying down a law and practicing wisdom. I think that's something we sometimes failed at. Um, a little more technical question. How do we know Paul's opposition to same-sex sex wasn't intended only for his context similar to his instructions regarding uh, women, which I assume is women in church office. Yeah. Um, one of the things I'm concerned about is that the Christian Reformed Church has maybe set up people in a wrong way for the same-sex argument or debate. In other words, the Christian Reformed Church said that Scripture is maybe not so clear, to pick my words, on the women in ecclesiastical offices. We've said actually that there are a number of texts that say no, such that that's a legitimate approach. 
And there are a number of texts that are more positive and affirming, which says that that's also an appropriate approach. And what I'm worried about, let alone you feeling on, or my, even my own feelings on this argument, what I'm worried about is people might apply the same criteria to this discussion, saying, well, we'll have two different interpretations. We'll have some, we'll have some individuals and some congregations who have one approach who say same-sex activity is wrong, same-sex marriage is wrong, okay? And we've got another approach that says same-sex activity is okay, same-sex marriage is okay, right? We've got these two equal things. And so I was actually speaking against that because unlike on the women in office issue where we have at least some positive examples that go in a different direction than the negative ones, I said to you again, for the third time now, the text on same-sex activity are clear and consistent, right? And therefore compelling. And so you say, how can we know, right? How can we know? At least that's one of the, one of the things. Maybe I could say something else. Um, I have a saying, another whimism to students that I want to share with you that I think is relevant for this, and, and some of my former students will hear this. I'll say this. I'll say, there are many subjects that the Bible mentions or addresses many times, and these many subjects that the Bible mentions many times are quite clear, and these are the things that we as Christians should shout no one disagrees with me at this point. I'm setting you up for the other half now. Are you ready? The other half is, there are some topics that the Bible doesn't talk about very often. And the few times the Bible talks about this subject, it's not so clear. And these are the things we should whisper. In other words, I try to stress upon students that you speak only as loudly as the text allows. In other words, you avoid the temptation, right, uh, to cover up uncertainty by just, you know, asserting it louder. There's a common joke, you know, it's among preachers, so maybe you don't know it, but the, the preacher has a sermon manuscript and writes in the margin a note to himself, says, weak point, shout louder, right? Just, okay, right, okay. So, in other words, honesty compels me to say that many subjects, most subjects of the Bible are addressed in many places and they're clear, and these are things we should... Shout. I'm not talking about decibel level, I'm talking about a level of certainty, but I'm also holding out the possibility, because there are some topics, and I could say what they are, that the Bible doesn't talk about very often, and these are the things we should whisper. Now, even though I know and I even advocate this difference between shouting and whispering, on the, the, now I hope you realize what, I, what I'm stressing when I say, when I go through carefully those three New Testament texts, I said that they were, first C word was clear. Okay, right? And compelling. So you say, how can you be certain? You know, uh, well, by applying reformed hermeneutics or exegesis, you know, on these texts, you know, it, 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 there comes to a certain degree of certainty. Now, the questioner may have complicated matters by, I said something like Paul's day, and then I think the question said something about how do we know today or something. Mm -hmm. See, now we're back to the application side of things, everybody, right? Now, although that's another step, I, the fact that the biblical texts are quite clear and consistent, it makes me feel that the application for today is relatively clear and consistent, right? So, I mean, the person, I don't know if they have a specific thing in mind, but in other words, 
someone could come along and say, well, Wyman, you said this about that First Corinthian text, but there are other scholars who say that, you know, and doesn't it mean that they're all, you know, I can do so again, that's why I don't want you to leave this evening, and there's a slide that says something like that. It's not like there's two positions of equal weight. Oh, yes, there's two positions. There's the traditional view of the text, and then there's what I've called the revision. So there's two positions, but don't think that they're both equally clear, or both equally persuaded. That's not the case. Okay? So there's two positions, and and I've said that second position, I've, I've tried to be honest in presenting to you the claims they made, and I've given you some reasons why they're not so persuasive, right? So, so you shouldn't walk out of here thinking, oh, wait a minute, there are two equal positions, and if there's two equal positions, well, then how can we do be dogmatic about it or something like that, right? No, they're clear, consistent, and therefore they're compelling for the church today. Next question. A um, little bit of a longer question. We began the evening acknowledging that Christians generally, along with the Christian Reformed Church specifically, have not responded to homosexuals graciously, pastorally, or helpfully. But the clear, consistent, compelling, and correct biblical exegesis is um, judged harsh, unloving, unkind, yeah. and thus unchristian. So from your connections, from your experience, how do Christians overcome this perception slash reality? Mm -hmm. uh, it's a great question. Uh, and in a certain sense, we can't overcome it. I mean, the truth is, we live uh, in, in such a culture and age. You know, it's really staggering uh, how among the public perception, forget about the church, the attitudes on same sex have changed. I mean, it's a very short time ago that culture and society was quite critical of same sex activity. And so it just happened then that the view of the church, the traditional view of the church overlapped. It agreed with the widespread view of culture and society, right? That's easy for us as a Christian. So now the real interesting thing for me is today, things are quite a bit different. Culture has switched huge on this particular matter. My wife and I are watching Anne with an E. You know what I'm talking about? Anne of Green Gables? Okay, and did you notice that in the second season of, I mean, Anne with an E is about as wholesome and G as you'd think you would get, right? And they, they can't help themselves. In second season, they introduce two same-sex attracted characters, a young boy and an aunt, okay? So, so, I mean, it's everywhere in our culture and society. I mean, it's foolish to think that we're naive and won't be impacted by that, right? So now, according to my interpretation and the church's interpretation, we have a view that actually is against, is a minority view, right, of culture and society. And it'll be very intriguing and interesting for me to see how the church reacts to that. Because most of us don't want to be considered homophobic or uncaring or legalistic or whatever other, even worse negative things that you can get, right? And, and, and uh, I'm wondering whether the Christian church is willing to endure those things. So, so anyway, that's just a general observation. Now, now here, it's really important for, to see how the extremes of both sides result in bad things, okay? So, if I'm in a community within the Christian Reformed Church that's very revisionist, very progressive, 
and they usually don't like it when I, what they say, okay? Now, the truth is, the more hard line the left goes, all it does is it emboldens the right to keep their stereotypes, you know, to, in other words, they'll start saying, the right will say, um, if we start showing hospitality to same-sex attracted people, right? I mean, you know, if we start showing kindness and grace to them, well, that'll only, see what it'll, it'll result in? It'll result in, you know, the church going for gay marriage and all that, right? And so it becomes almost easier in that context to dig in your heels and to not be the caring, compassionate community that we're supposed to be. You follow me? And the same thing is true of the left. The more the right digs in their heels and exhibit a kind of redneck, homophobic fear and treatment of such people, and the church has done that, the easier it becomes for the left to say, see? <laughs> see what the church does? I mean, they're embarrassing the gospel, right? We have to more aggressive. And if you understand what happens, right, in this polarized situation, so what I'd like to see happen is the more caring and compassionate the Christian community appropriately is towards same-sex attracted people, it kind of weakens the argument on the left that we have to be aggressive and we have to assert these rights and we have to do that. Now, even if we did all of that, I, I, as I said, we live in a culture and age where um, I just think it's almost impossible not to be perceived anyway in that negative, critical light. And I know from firsthand experience from the fan mail that I, I get uh, once in a while, you know, in some of my presentations and from people who know what our committee is up. But, uh, so I'm, I'm trying not to be too pessimistic about the whole thing, but uh, so, so I'm the same person, you know, saying the same thing, you know, and uh, the left thinks I'm some raving fundamentalist and they don't like what I say. And the right think I'm too progressive, pushing them to be caring and compassionate. I'd like to think that there's truth there that hopefully will bring our community together. Mm. Not just as individual churches, but as a denomination too. Mm. Um, a question we've <coughs> been in the neighborhood of, but this one's a little more specific. How would you suggest that elders in particular in the church ought to support families who are struggling with same-sex issues? Yeah, well, uh, that's, a, that's a great question. I mean, I'd be just really excited that elders would recognize that it's part of their duty. You know, I'd, I'd like to see elders do the same thing, you know, when people have a wayward son or daughter or when someone dies in their family. You know, I'd, I'd, like, I'd like to see that kind of pastoral care happen in general. So let's assume that it is now. <laughs> So that's a good thing. And then, um, well, I, I'm just going to echo, you know, what about the grace points that we, we made earlier, right? Um, I think you have to examine your own heart, too, first of all. And you have to look at people with same-sex attraction and say, well, um, well, I mean, they're fellow image bearers of God. I mean, their sexual orientation is negatively impacted by the fall, but mine is, too, you know? So, I mean, there should be some of those common features. I mean, there should be a recognition that if there are parents, you know, the parents naturally have great concerns for their son or daughter, right? I mean, and, uh, and so, you know, that's where you need that wisdom, you know, to, on one hand, 
affirm the truth of the Christian gospel in this regard, but also to show in appropriate ways how grace ought to be evident in this, in this situation. And, uh, you know, maybe like all pastoral care, you don't always have to come with the answers, right? It's, it's simply being there to listen, right? To walk with them through this difficult time and to maybe bring them to the feet of God in prayer when it's difficult for them to do that. I mean, I mean, it's not like you have to, you don't have to be trained, you know, with all this, right, you know, before you can go, right? Uh, mm-hmm. I know there's a sense of fear and trembling, but we really believe that the Holy Spirit will equip leaders in the church, you know, to appropriately minister to people in those contexts, yeah. So you're kind of coming back to that wisdom thing. Uh, I am, yes. That I don't have a lot of, see, that's why I really... <laughs> you I can tell a wise man because he starts by saying, I don't have no, much I, wisdom, I, but I here we go from there. I'm just a little older in life and found out the hard way, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to rephrase this question a little bit, but um, you've called yourself an egghead a few times tonight. You teach in seminary. Um, How do you think these kinds of conversations can happen well, especially as pastors teach, but can happen well in worship services, can happen well in the church? Mm -hmm. So how can we make those conversations happen? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Boy. Well... Of course, it helps if there already is some form of existing communication, right? So let's imagine parents and kids, right? Um, if kids don't have a pretty honest and open relationship where they can talk with their parents about anything, not surprisingly, they're not going to be very reticent, you know, or they're not going to be very eager to talk to them about sensitive matters, right? Whether their own orientation or that of another student, right? And conversely, if there is, I mean, Maybe kids still think their parents are old-fashioned and weird, but yet, you know, they grudgingly respect them, and, and there's just a history of that. Well, then that's going to happen easier, right? And the same thing is true in the church, right? If, if you're part of a congregation where, where people are fairly free and sharing some of the burdens they struggle with their life, right? As opposed to, wait a minute, I have a certain image to uphold, and we just don't talk about those things. Or, you know, I mean, so, so some of that is determined by the broader relationship that it already exists, Right? Now, you could maybe try to proactive create opportunities for these discussions. I mean, I don't know, tomorrow I'm talking about sex in church, and it may well be that people are like, oh, I can't believe we're talking about sex in church. You know, what a pro, well, I don't know about you brothers and sisters, but we live in a sex-saturated society, okay? And you're terribly naive, you're foolishly naive if you think even your young children aren't hearing these things in the world, right? So what better place for them to hear about sex than in the church or in the home or something like that, right? And so maybe parents need to be a bit more proactive to try to create opportunities to have these conversations, even though, again, it may be a little bit awkward or something, but that would be at least desirable, right? You know, I'm a little disappointed. I'm not surprised that the age, the average age of everyone here tonight is a little on the higher end, right? Okay. (laughs) Well, anyway, um, I mean... So a couple of ways to think about that, right? So, I mean, you know, how can we bring the younger generation in, right? Now, especially since they, like we, but almost they more, are almost more impacted and influenced by culture and society. The honest truth is this summer, Pastor Greg was there. I didn't know you were there. And I, it was a Monday in June, right? And I had to, I was getting ready in my home to drive to Calvin College because our committee was going to give its interim report, all right? I'm chairperson, so co-chairperson, so I had to go and do that. Anyway, uh, my wife had, I think it was some good morning program on, and uh, Taylor Swift had just come out with a new video. 
I'm not quite sure of the title, but like get over it or move on or something. But anyway, the whole video was um, very prominent same-sex and you know transgender people from the Hollywood community were in her video, right? And um, also in the video were some Neanderthal-looking Christians holding signs like God created Adam and Eve, not Steve, okay? And so it was a very you know clear message about you know how intolerant you know traditional Christianity was towards same-sex attracted people. Anyway, that video has been watched, I'm, I don't know, I can't remember exactly, but anyway, it's something like 150 to 200 million times. Did you hear that? Okay. And so here I am, I'm going to go to Synod, you know, then we're spending, you know, three times a year we meet, you know, we meet all Friday night, all day Saturday, you know, all the research we do, you know, and, and, and I'm saying to myself, you know, more people are going to be influenced by watching that rotten video, you know, than, 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 than ever working through our report. I don't, I don't say that to scare you, but I, I just, like, wake up. Okay? And so, because we live in this culture and age, you know, and with an e, I mean, it's everywhere, right? Then, I, to me, it's like the situation cries out for discussion. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as parents, as church leaders... I mean, why don't you just name it? It's out there everywhere anyway, and so why don't we just be a little more explicit and proactive, right? Even though, again, it may be a bit awkward and not always easy to have some of these conversations. 